The views expressed on the patient's perspective come directly from patients, so they are not intended to diagnose, treat, or replace professional medical advice. Information coming from the patient's perspective is for entertainment and educational purposes only, so if you have any health concerns regarding yourself or anyone else, please see a physician. The Patient's Perspective is a podcast created by patients for patients and does not focus on any specific disease or condition. Content may make you laugh, cry, and question your moral beliefs surrounding healthcare and the many issues patients run into while in the system. Finally, the most important point of view is cast into the light. The Patient's Perspective. Hi, everyone. So for today's episode, I have Susie, who's an MS patient who resides in Ontario, Canada. Susie currently is in a quadriplegic state after handling her her MS for a number of years. However, Susie's condition degraded quite rapidly over a 10-year period. Thanks very much, Susie, for being here today. All right, we'll we'll get her done now. So, Susie, you and I uh, were discussing, um, you know, your life story. And I'm so happy that you decided to come and speak with us today. So I don't know too much about MS other than just the fact that you and I've already discussed that Canada has quite high rates, particularly in the prairies, uh, anywhere that's further away from the equator. Um, so I'm just actually going to let you uh, kind of take over from here. So what, uh, what would you like to share with us and, and how has it been and what is your story? All right, I will start at the beginning. Um, and I have no problem talking about it simply because I want people to be aware. My journey didn't start like most MS patients. I did not have any symptoms beforehand. And it was found by accident. So I was in a car accident in 2006. I had severe whiplash and lower back pain coming out of it. So I was doing a lot of chiro and physio, but one chiropractor I had was also a medical doctor. And he said that he wanted an MRI. So Ottawa is my closest city. I'm about two hours away, which becomes important after. So he sent me for an MRI it came back and said that I was suffering from disc herniation to the point where it was pushing on my spinal cord. And that's why I was having these issues. So we've got a span here of the accident was in 06. 
those MRIs didn't happen until September of 08. Because in that two year period, I started to notice that if I was walking and I got warm, my legs would just quit. I couldn't stand up anymore. I called them jello legs. Um, also, I was having some urinary incontinence that I knew wasn't normal. Um, I'll add a little aside in here. In 2005, my last child was two and I had a surgery to um, put a sling in my bladder to hold it back in place because that last baby had moved stuff around in there. So that was for stress incontinence. That stopped me from peeing when I laughed or coughed or sneezed. And to this day, it's still working for that. But the MS incontinence, which I later found out, is completely different. It, it is related to spasms and is neurologically controlled. Anyways, that's neither here nor there. So I had that MRI. I was supposed to stay on bed rest because of the immediacy of the surgery I was to have. But because my car insurance was still involved, they wanted a second opinion a second MRI. So they paid for me to go to a private MRI clinic on the Quebec side of Ottawa in Gatineau. And when I did that one, he did the same spinal one that was asked for. And he brought my husband and I in and said, we don't have disc herniations. I'm pretty sure that you have multiple sclerosis. And he then explained that this was his retirement job. His work, which he only retired from the year before, was at the Ottawa General Hospital where the MS clinic is. So he knew what MS looked like. So he said, you know, we're gonna do a second MRI on your brain if you're willing and you need to pay for it because it was a private facility. So I think it cost us $900. So we then did a brain MRI, which indicated that I had two lesions in my brain, but the rest were on my spine. So from that, that was, that was Tuesday, October 21st. So from that, he used his connections and got me into a neurologist at the multiple sclerosis, sclerosis clinic for the next Friday. So it was only a four day window. And I went into that neurological appointment, not knowing anything about multiple sclerosis. We have no family with it. Um, in fact, the only person I knew that had it was, it wouldn't even be a relative. She was married to my step uncles. The woman was my step uncle's daughter. So we're talking no blood relation. So that was all I knew of multiple sclerosis. And that was all that my husband knew about it at the time. Um, so when you walk into that first appointment, this is where it kind of gets funny, the things doctors say. This doctor was a woman and I had never been to a neurologist before. I didn't know what I was doing. 
So I remember my mom, my husband, and I were in the room, and she presented us with, at the time, I think it was a list of five drugs. These are the drugs that are available to help you. They were called disease-modifying therapies or DMTs. So she said, here's a list of them, a list of their side effects. They're all about the same, so you pick one. And then we'll set you up. So I picked one. I picked one that was a daily injection. Um, the only reason I picked it was because it had the slightest amount of risk for depression. And that was something that was important to me. So we went ahead with that. And this doctor said, I would like to do a lumbar puncture. And she said, it's the real nail in the, co in the coffin. And then she said, I guess I shouldn't say that, right? And I thought, you know, eye roll. It's kind of stupid to say. Um, so anyways, I did my spinal tap. And the purpose of that is the indicators of multiple sclerosis will show up in the spi spinal fluid, but not in the blood um, as far as history has gone right now. There's no genetic link. Um, it was explained to me that it is hereditary, not genetic. So mm -hmm. we don't pass it on in our genes, but it's an autoimmune disease. So if you have one autoimmune disease, it's likely that you will get others. So my children are only slightly higher at risk of getting multiple sclerosis, but they will have immune disorders. And my daughter at 22 already has celiac disease um, and a peanut allergy. So she's got some immuno stuff going on. And do you, sorry to jump in there. Do you feel that, cause I know some immune conditions can come on with an onset of something um, like some sort of event. Do you think that the car accident was the event that led to, um, or did, did, did you have any symptoms before the car accident that you noticed or did it just? Okay, well, that very first appointment, appointment, she goes back through your history. And once I started doing that, I realized that um, around 2001, that winter, I, my hand went dead. Um, my right hand would not work. Lasted about a week, but I went to my doctor. He sent me for nerve conduction tests and they came back with nothing. So I carried on from there about, it took about a week. My hand went back to normal and I never had another problem with it. And also around the same time, I had been coaching adult figure skating lessons. Um, and I was still skating. I was still doing what I needed to do on the ice. And then all of a sudden I couldn't balance right. And I remember blaming the sharpening on my skates, which is a common figure skating excuse. And the fact that I had had a baby and my, I had gained weight and my body shape had changed a bit, you know, your ribs spread out, 
whatever. I just found things to blame. But those were the two things that we could go back. And they thought that my hand going numb was the first symptom. But by the accident time, I had nothing else. I was still walking, jogging if I had to. Um, I was a super mom. I had two little ones. You know, life was good. But then by the spring of 07, my husband and I were in the Dominican Republic and walking on a beach. And I was fine going one way, but coming back, my legs were like jello. So he ended up walking in the water and pulling me floating back to where our chairs were. I'm sure everybody thought I was drunk along the way, but I hadn't had a drop. I don't drink. Um, so that was the, the kind of thing that had me scared by 08. That made me think that the car accident had caused this. Now, after reading a lot about it, um, it is highly probable that that car accident did speed up my progression mm-hmm. and the development of the MS. But it was, I actually had a lawsuit going against the driver because it was an on-fault accident. But whenever I found out I had MS, I dropped it. Um, should I have stuck with it? Probably. But, you know, you're young and focused on yourself. So I just wanted to figure out what was wrong with me then by 08. Anyways, 08, I was still fairly active. Um, By then, my jogging with my kids would have been slower. Um, Like I said, if we were out, we're outside people. So we'd be out doing a walk in the bush. And all of a sudden, I'd have to pee. And I'd go pee. But then I'd start to walk and my legs would be jello. And it made things very difficult in our lifestyle because nobody wants to wait for mom to catch up. So I was still working full time. I'm, uh, I was a school sport counselor working for the local school board. I worked for 20 years. Um, 2012, everyone realized that it just took me too long to get around the school um, because my walking was so slow now. Um, I was using a cane. So one of my principals actually said, you need to get a scooter. So I bought a little three wheel scooter and that's how I got around the school. Now, sorry here. It sounds like you were a very active person before this occurred. Um, yes. How has that been for you as well as your family, especially with like the, um, you know, uh, quite quickly of, of um, like degrade, what's the pronoun, proper word that I'm trying to say? Uh, like you degraded quite quickly. Yeah. So Progress. progressed, right? So how has that been on you and your family? And then what sort of barriers now are you noticing going from being healthier to that's what uh, we're getting up to. Yep. So 2012, I was still, 
being super mom. So I was still driving my kids to their hockey and their skating and working full time. And the scooter, thankfully, was portable. So I could take it with me, like on a shopping day or something. Um, I was still driving. And I, I would get out of the vehicle and get my scooter out of the back of, the tr- of my SUV. And away I'd go. Um, I'd also use my walker that way sometimes too. I'm sure people thought I was crazy. Like wondering, you know, what the patient who can't walk is doing driving. But anyways, so 2012, that was, no, we stayed home that year. 2013 was my last trip south. We went to Cuba. And at that point, we didn't take my scooter with me. And I kicked my butt for that because all we had was a wheelchair. And that meant my husband had to push me everywhere. And let's face it, when you're at a resort, sometimes you want a little bit of time to go for a walk alone, or I'd want to check out the stores and he'd want to stay on the beach or whatever. But he had to, as he says now, lug me around. But it wasn't that bad. It's just in retrospect, it was different from our other trips. Anyways, thankfully, I have private medical insurance and it paid for that scooter because scooters are something that are not covered in Ontario under any sort of plan um, for anyone. And I was very thankful to have this paid for for me. So it worked great for a couple of years. By 2014, I couldn't walk at all. And I was totally incontinent with urine. So I wanna, I'm embarrassed to think of how many people might've smelled me smelling like pee or noticed that maybe my pants were wet. Um, but I, in my head, thought that I must continue working. I absolutely loved my job and I pushed myself hard um, because my children went to the school I worked in and I had goals. I wanted to at least stay in it until they graduated. And then my hope was I was going to just wait and apply for high school positions as they came up, but that never happened. Um, My last work was in June of 2015. Um, I actually stopped working in May of that year, but they kept me on for paperwork and behavioral planning for the last of the year. And then I didn't go back that fall. So I'm gonna dip into my finances for a bit. So while I was working, I was forever investigating my long-term disability plan. Um, Around the time I started working in 2000, that's when they decided that um, everybody that worked for the school board had to apply for the long-term disability plan. And thankfully I had that. So I knew when I stopped working that eventually I would be making 60% of my income, but it would be tax-free. And I would have my 
benefits free for a year, but then I'd have to start paying for them. Um, but, you know, I did it all. That first year I was home, um, I guess I was a bit delusional. I insisted that I must keep working and I must push myself. So I did a lot of research into virtual counseling at the time, um, texting counseling, all these kind of things. And in my county and kept being told, no, no, we don't do that. We can't do that. And then COVID hit and that's exactly what they did. Mm-hmm. But I was already gone by that point. Um, so yeah, from 2016 till 2019 maybe I've kind of blocked out everything because I wasn't accepting my disease as well as um, my family wasn't dealing well I was angry and it just took me that long until I finally figured out this isn't you Susie you're a very optimistic person you need to figure this crap out so what I did was over that time my right hand was completely gone so I started teaching myself to write with my left hand Uh, and I did that by coloring I colored countless books all with my left hand and that's uh, coloring is also I mean good for anxiety as well right like they use that now for uh, not just anxiety, but for mental wellness. I mean, adults yeah. now they give them coloring books, right? It's a fabulous mindless activity. Um, but anyways, I was right up to being able to sign my name and write simple things with my left hand. Like I was pretty proud of myself, but then that hand went too. Um, and that's when I became complete quadriplegic. So what I mean by that is I am probably a quadriplegic from C2 maybe so how it looks on the MRI is my entire spine from my neck down is coated in lesions um and what that means is I guess I'll give you a quick information on how the MS works so multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune disease So my immunity starts attacking myself. And in this case, it attacks the myelin sheath. And that is the coating that is around our spine and every nerve in our body. So it would attack these nerves and cause scars or lesions. Multiple sclerosis is actually multiple scars if you were to translate it and these lesions slowed down the message coming out of your brain so your brain you want to wave at somebody you what you're at the time your brain is telling you to raise your arm and shake your hand but that message doesn't get through and at the first It wasn't that it didn't get through. It was that it didn't get through quickly. So my hand and arm movements would be delayed. 
um, that's just me doing something would be slower. Um, I could still do it, but it took me a while. I remember, I remember sitting in, it was an indigenous meeting at my school and we were sitting in a circle. And if you know anything about indigenous circles, you always enter and go to the left. Um, so I did that, I found my seat, but then they wanted you to shake hands. I can't shake with my left hand. So I'd have to lift up my right and explain to every single person that I'm sorry, but I have to do it this way. Pre-COVID, that wouldn't be a problem now, I guess. It was just different things. Um, so by 20, go ahead. Oh, I'm just going to say, so, I mean, this is why a lot of persons with conditions um, have to talk about their conditions, right? Because Absolutely. they run into situations like that where it can cause embarrassment to them or it can cause embarrassment to somebody else. For like for myself, I have to remind people every single year that I've been diagnosed as allergic to the sun because they always invite us out. And it's, it's, they're, they're not doing it to be, to be mean. They just completely forget that yeah. I have been diagnosed with a sun allergy, like a true sun allergy. And so I can't go to the beach at two o'clock in the afternoon. No, maybe <laughs> so, it's seven or eight yeah in the evening but yeah i understand yeah so it, it's it's and so sometimes we get um persons will be like you always talk about your disease and one time i actually watched when i d talked about it and it was exactly in the type of situation you just described in the fact yeah. that i got into a situation where i had to discuss it and that's why it ends up looking like you always want to talk about your condition so that that's all i wanted to say you know is is you know yeah. for my own situation right yeah just recognize that for some people the simplest things are different for you it's going to a beach for me it's um now it's just getting out of my house takes planning anyways by 2019 I discovered, well, I knew that historically I had always been the most optimistic person around. Um, that was, that's just my nature. So at that point I started to think about anything during the day that brought me happiness or joy. It took a long time, but I finally started to recognize that Maybe stuff isn't quite as bad as what I thought. I mean, it's still horrific. I feel bad when I'm talking to any new patients with MS because I'm sure I'm terrifying. Simply because I'm where people are fear they're going to be when they get diagnosed. Because it is a progressive disease, and basically we're all progressing towards the wheelchair, right? It just happened that mine came really quickly and really early. I was only 38 and I was in a wheelchair full time. So that is hard to accept. Anyways, that just took me off my thought. So 
I eventually got to the point where I could calm myself down and I started making sure that I, I still do this. I'm a shopper. I always shop sales. I tried now. I, I, now I know that if I look good, I feel good. So every morning I get up, I make sure I match. I look nice. My hair gets washed. Somebody else does it. Somebody else does my everything, of course. Um, there's nothing I can do on my own body myself. Um, I can't even scratch my own nose. But what I did have was knowledge from working in a school and seeing the symptom, the systems that came together to provide support for students who have technological needs. So about that time, I started to really research, okay, what can I do here? Well, my first power wheelchair, I could operate my phone with the controls of the chair. So that made me able to do a lot of things. Um, but then Apple came out with an iOS program called voice control. So now I can run my phone completely with my mouth and talking to it, not anything else. Um, I also had to figure out how I could get my water. So I, again, researched and researched. And there's a product called Giraffe Bottle. So if anybody ever looks at a picture of me, it's likely that the straw is in front of me because the bottle is on my chair and it's got like a three foot long straw that's bendable and you can make it work. So it's always available to my mouth. Small things, but hugely important when you need to drink a lot of water every day. Um, found out you can even put a cooler in it if you want. Um, anything that I can suck up with a straw. So that was a win for me. Anyways, I'm going to back up to those medications she showed me. Turns out that first one, the once a day one, didn't hold back my disease at all. It continued. So then we tried another one. And within two months, I was ready to step out in traffic. I was asking my husband to just leave me in the middle of an intersection in Montreal one time. Um, it was dreadful, so I stopped it. And this is where I made my hugest mistake. I chose to go back on that first one because I was afraid of try trying the three others. And then, okay, around that same time, so 2012, they started looking into stem cell transplants. Mm -hmm. um, and not my doctor, but there was another doctor in the clinic that was the head stem cell transplant for MS research person in Canada. He's the one that blew it open across the country. So around 2013, 2014, 
I requested that I get switched over to him, thinking that maybe he can do something. So, but I finally got in to see him around 2016. I was already in a wheelchair, my legs didn't work. And he looked at me and he said, you know, if you had been my patient in 2012, we would have done the stem cell transplant and you wouldn't be like this. Mm-hmm. He said that to me at multiple appointments, like three years in a row, he said that. And I'm like, wait a minute here. So I was being seen by his colleague in the same clinic and she didn't think to suggest that. Yeah, it just blew my mind. Completely blew my mind that these highly specialized doctors, they assign themselves to certain trials. Mm-hmm. And she happened to be on a drug trial for this one drug that she did end up giving to me. It was an oral pill you took every day. And for a year, I told that woman, I don't feel good. Mm-hmm. Something is not right. And in June of 2014, I finally said, I'm sorry, these pills are making me sick. I can't do them anymore. Okay, we're going to take you off them. But you really should keep taking them until we figure something else out. And I said, no, I'm stopping now. I need to let them work out. Mm -hmm. Let them get out of my system. So then they wanted to put me onto this new one which was a monthly infusion. Um, Now this again rates into how far I am from the hospital because I had to go down to the auto hospital every month to get this infusion put in. It took two hours. Um, But I had three of them in the fall and I realized that every time I had it, I was right down sick in bed for a week after it. Mm -hmm. so they agreed that I could stretch it out and do it every six weeks around the same time they also got permission for me to get it done at a hospital half an hour from my house which was nice but anyways let's go back to the end of that once of a day pill in order to put me on this infusion it was called Tysabri they needed to do specific blood work And when they did mine, it came back that my, I believe they were CD2, CD4 levels were wiped out and my immunity was at the stage of an end end stage AIDS patient. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's how sick I was from those pills. Mm. But nobody wanted to listen to me. So then when the infusion started making me sicker, again, down for a week after every one of them, eventually I just stopped and I went, this is ridiculous. And I haven't taken another one of those drugs since. Um, So I live with the knowledge that there's nothing that is preventing my disease from progressing more. Um, At any point, my brain could decide to get active and start a whole bunch of lesions up there. And that would make me lose eyesight, ability to talk, mm-hmm. swallowing, all of that stuff. But I just have to keep going one day at a time when I don't have these symptoms. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm it's I think most people listening to this will be really impressed with um, your positivity going through this, right? Yeah, absolutely. I hope so. Yeah. I mean, you know, many people would be, you know, complaining um, about their life. And, um, you know, I don't, you know, I mean, it sounds like you went through rough spots like many of us do. But it sounds like you are uh, handling it in the best way that you possibly can, right? I've always felt that I had to because the alternative is worse. Yeah. So when I was first diagnosed, there's an MS Supports Society in Canada, right? The MS Society. Yeah. And I remember calling them. And at the time they had their... Um, peer support calling program. So I called in, I said, look, I'm 32, 33 years old now. I'm diagnosed with this huge disease. I'm still working. I'd love to talk to somebody else that has done that or is doing it. And they came back and said, we have nobody for you like that. Mm-hmm. So I went through everything alone. Um, the only thing I ever got from the MS Society was $1,000 for a new air conditioner. And um, they played for my house cleaning for a bit. Yeah. But that's all I ever got from them. So there was no support for the equipment I needed or for um, my travel time to get down to the clinics. Um, and that's what I needed. Yeah. That's a huge barrier. Like if I didn't have my private insurance, I wouldn't have had a lot of the things that I needed to help me along the way. And even like my power wheelchairs now, this one costs 30 grand. Mm -hmm. Um, they're a finely tuned piece of machinery and I understand why they cost that much kind of. Although I, I know that you can buy a brand new car cheaper, but anyways, so in Ontario, the assistive devices program paid for 75% of my power wheelchair. So the patient's responsible for the other 25 and my, I had private insurance for that. So my 25 was almost 10 grand Mm -hmm. and all I could think about was what do patients do who don't have that private insurance? Yeah. You know, like it's not my, my socks for my legs. If I, you know, they gave them to me when I was, even before I was 30 years old is when I got the prescription. If I lived to be 80, I figured out it'd be like $120,000 in my lifetime on socks. You know, and I, I walked yes. out, I was one of the people that I couldn't really afford it, you know? So. Money, yeah. unfortunately, gets in the way of our help. Yeah, it does. And you don't realize that until you're in the middle of it. No. Um, but I mean, I would love to go off on the medical system in our provinces, but I can't at this point. Simply because I know Ontario as well, but I've never looked into the other provinces. 
What about your workers? Who covers for that, if you don't mind me asking? All right. In Ontario, we have a program called, it used to be the CCAC, the Coordinated Care Access Committee or something. Then it was called the LIN, the Local Local Integrated Health Network. And now it's something else. I think it's Home and Health Care or something. Anyways, it's the same, same body of government work, but they just changed the name, mm-hmm. which I think I which I think is just so they all get new key lanyards and name tags and everything with the new name on it. Your emails are <laughs> it's crazy. Anyways, um, with this program, it covers everything. So they do your, they oversee the long-term care placements. They do physio, chiro. Um, they will order in the caregivers for in your house. And they have a graphing system where they work out how much time you get based on your symptoms. Mm-hmm. And everybody has to start off low. So I originally started with an hour a week. Um, then it became an hour a day. I forget how long that lasted. But then it started to get an hour in the morning, an hour at night. And then somebody, my care coordinator actually, that's what they're called, care coordinators, suggested I apply for March of Dimes funding and I did and March of Dimes now provides me with 20 hours of work a week so that's my Monday to Friday every day and then they put out I also March of Dimes money is separate from this care coordinator um, organization so on top of those 20 hours, I get another 21 hours a week through them. And right now it's, I have four different agencies that cover those visits. So I'll give you a week now. So every week I get Monday to Friday, I get four hours a day plus an hour every evening of PSW support. And then on weekends, I get uh, two, three hours a day plus an hour at night. But here's another little tidbit of information. In Ontario, it is mandated that for anybody to use a lift of any sort for a patient, there must be two people to run it. So I've got one worker that will pull me back, like when I'm in the lift, pull me back, he'll sit in the chair. And then the other one just pushes a button. And for that, I've had to use, um, there's something called caregiver respite hours. Yeah. Yeah. That's an additional 15 hours. I don't even know what it is. But I use those hours to get me a second person 
but you can only get a second person in for 45 minutes. Mm -hmm. So I, I have a second person all every morning for 45 minutes. Um, and at nighttime, one of my family members needs to be here. Yeah. And that adds more stress to the, to the family, I'm sure, which I mean, that would be a whole other podcast. I want to interview. I can do a whole other I can do a whole other podcast on alone. yeah stress and my experience with it. Now, um, we're kind of um, getting down to the wire in terms of time. Is there anything else that you can think of that you really need to get out for, for this podcast? Because um, we're probably going to be doing another one so fairly soon here. I told you I like to talk a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, Me too. Definitely. I mean, you can re-listen to this and pull out any questions you might have. Yeah. And any, any listeners can pull, throw me any questions. Yeah. I've, ne- I've never shied away from speaking about it. And like, even if I'm out at Walmart or something and I see, it's usually either a child or an older person. The curious. Looking, looking at me curiously. And I'll just tell them, you know, it's, well, first of all, I have to explain to them that I drive with, I drive with my headrest. So I'm using my head to drive and turn. I can switch gears. I can tilt my head up and down, my chair up and down. But people don't know how I'm doing it because they don't see my hands doing anything. So I'd rather people be educated than wonder. Yeah. And then that's part of the reason, I mean, you know, like I explained to everyone um, that, that that's why this, I think this podcast had to be done because there's just assumptions everywhere and majority of the assumptions are wrong. Right. So yeah. until they actually hear it from the patient's mouths about what actually is happening or why they do things, yeah, people just assume. Right. Yep. So with that said, um, I think we're going to have to end this interview for today. Although, you know, I think Susie did an excellent job. I certainly have learned a lot. Like I, I didn't know that. um, I mean, I never even thought about it until you just told me about the fact that you can drive with your head, right? Like I would have never even thought about that. Um, So I definitely have learned a lot listening to you today. And I uh, hope that you come back and I would love, love, love to have, um, you know, the discussion with you in in terms of, or even your family members in terms of what this has been like for them, because it's, I I mean, I know from my family perspective, it was really stressful, but we didn't Mm -hmm. even have the large amounts of physical care that um, your situation requires, right? Yep. So that's added on top of it. That's next time. Yeah, next time. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you very much. And um, I hope everybody out there has a wonderful day. Thank you. Bye, Susie. Bye, everyone. I'm so happy you were able to join in and listen to us today. If you have an episode idea or would like to share your story, please email me at info at thepatientsperspective.com or join our Facebook page under the same name. From all of us who are working hard bringing patient issues to light, 
Thank you for tuning in and supporting the patient's perspective. 